Welcome to the CFOleader.com podcast. I'm your host, Anthony Castro. Really excited for this episode, which is entitled, What Exactly Is Treasury, right? (laughs) And I'm joined by Wade Olson, the co-founder of Treasury Suite. Wade, how are you? I'm well, Anthony, how are you? I'm great. Thanks so much for joining us. As a CFO, there are obviously a lot of responsibilities and roles that roll up to the CFO, right? From accounting, audit, uh, FP&A, compliance, and whatnot. One of the obviously very important ones is the treasury function. The reality though, is that unless you are a CFO of a large organization, you're not going to have probably a, a treasury department. You may not even have a treasury person, a dedicated one single treasury person, um, which means that the function of treasury is going to be allocated amongst, you know, yourself, uh, other members of your department, and just kind of co-mingled between the different areas. So, uh, you know, this discussion is more focused around just as a CFO, what is the framework, uh, the, the thought processes we need to have around treasury as we're kind of growing our organizations? What are the areas we should be watching? And more importantly, what is the appropriate amount of treasury oversight and functionality at different stages of your company, right? So uh, Wade, why don't we take a quick second before we dive in, please introduce yourself, talk about your experience with Treasury and tell us a little bit about Treasury Suite. You bet. So again, thank you for having me on today. Um, My background in Treasury started over 25 years ago. When I finished with graduate school, I focused a lot of my time in graduate school on foreign exchange, on hedging and derivative type stuff. And when I came out of graduate school, I was fortunate enough to get a job at iOmega Corporation in Utah the zip drive, zip disk company, and was able to get right in the treasury department and start working on cash foreign exchange right off the bat. It was fantastic. So from there, I've been the treasury manager, treasurer, assistant treasurer, head of investor relations, head of risk management for lots of multinational corporations uh, over the last 20 some odd years. And then about 13 years ago, uh, one of the gentlemen I worked with at a couple different companies, he and I decided to start Treasury Suite because we were dissatisfied with the tools that were in the marketplace for treasurers. We didn't like the the overly built, overly costly, overly difficult to use systems that were there. And we figured there's a better way to do it. So 12, 13 years ago, we designed our own treasury system and we started Treasury Suite. Great. Fantastic. So let's dive in right now and let's just get to the crux of it. So I, I think the first question that I have, you know, from, from a treasury professional as yourself, please define for us, what exactly in your mind is treasury? So for me, the way I've always looked at treasury is it's the oversights and viewing of the most liquid parts of the balance sheet. Right. Okay. And that would include things such as cash management, investments, debt, leverage you can bring into this situation as well, all the working capital, your bank relationship management, receipts and payments processing, credit and collections office oftentimes is in there, foreign exchange, hedging, hedging of commodities, hedging of interest rate risk, hedging of, hedging of currencies, risk management and insurance oftentimes flows up underneath treasury as well. So you have all your insurance policies rolled up through there. Mm-hmm. Employee stock programs at times, I've been oversight of those in treasury. There's some connection to there a little bit. And it also a lot of times makes sense to have investor relations for publicly traded companies roll up underneath treasury as well. Those are the kind of areas that I define underneath the treasury umbrella. Okay. And so, you know, a dedicated treasury person, like when in your mind, like yeah. should a company be considering actually having like, uh, and considering hiring a, a dedicated treasury person? So that depends on two things typically. And the first one is the complexity of those things we just outlined, right? How complex is that for your business? There's some small companies that have a very complex treasury need. And if those certain things that they have a lot of foreign exposure with foreign exchange stuff, that complexity 
would lend itself to bring in somebody that understands foreign exchange really well. If you do foreign exchange trading and foreign exchange hedging correctly, you can really provide financial and risk management benefit to your company. So that's the one part. There are certain parts of your business that are just so complex. It just kind of demands having a talent that's dedicated to those complex needs for the risk management side of it, most importantly. But a lot of times you look at it this way too. The size of the company matters as well because responsibilities start to get overwhelming from the number of things that have to happen. And so as companies start getting to that three, four, five hundred million dollar in revenue or into one, two, three more countries outside of their home country, it starts to make a little bit more sense to bring somebody in to focus on these treasury related items. Right. Now that makes sense. You know, in my, in my career personally, you know, I've always worked with startups, so smaller companies that are growing, getting off the ground and whatnot. And so never obviously had a, a dedicated treasury per- personnel. And honestly, when, when I've thought about cash and cash management, obviously it's more about, you know, conserving cash, right? It's yeah. making sure like managing expenses, making sure that, you know, uh, our, our cash is preserved. Uh, even after a round of funding, um, you know, I, I want my money to be safe. I want it to be accessible and liquid. Uh, it, you know, for me, it's more just like, hey, what's what's the best interest rate I can get in a short term period? You know, as opposed to thinking like, oh, what's my investment strategy or this or that? Like, that's not even on my radar because I'm just trying to protect what I like to call the rock, <laughs> protect yeah, the rock exactly. and maintain it. And so it seems like it's it's a different. And I remember at my last company, um, you know, I was the I was the VP of finance, and then we brought on a uh, a CFO. His name was Paul Fletcher. Um, he was, was fantastic. And he was a, a former, you know, he was, he just came from a public company and in his world, he would, you know, he had like, I don't know, like a 500, $600 million credit line. And, you know, his, his world of cash was, I think more in line with what you're thinking. It's more about efficiency of cash and, and maximizing return and whatnot. And I came from the, from the world of just holding every penny and, you know, basically just protecting that. And so it, it was interesting as we kind of came together and melding those two worlds and those two thought processes. Cause you, you, have, I think as a CFO, you just have to be conscious of what stage you're at and really what your goal for your cash is, right? Would you agree on that? Oh, absolutely. And, and you made a, a very good point there. Depending on how cash flow positive and cash flow positive your future looks, you're going to treat your cash differently. Like you're talking about the startup phase, you probably got this cash investment and you have a runway you've defined and you got to get to a certain you know amount of sales coming in the door before that runway runs out right and keep your operations efficient so you got this cash runway you're looking at all the time whereas you're for a, a bigger company an ongoing company you've already kind of an established cash flow stream you've got a credit facility or a set of credit facilities in place you look differently at your cash now i've been at large companies that ran out of cash and that's an even more difficult situation i remember <laughs> iomega for example we had a 1.5 billion dollar credit line we had to negotiate down because we were, our business was contracting at the same time. And we were going through constant renegotiations with our credit facility group about all of our covenant requirements. And so I've been on both sides of the coin where you're cash flush, where you're cash starved. And I've been part of private equity groups that have invested in you know, startups and monitored them from a cash runway standpoint. So you're seeing it from all different angles. But at the end of the day, the common thing is you're managing your cash and your capital resources on a schedule, right? A time horizon. And how do you most effectively do that? Got it. So I, I think for, for a lot of our audience right now, and I guess the thing that I want is, uh, you know, is to understand from your perspective, how we should be thinking and gaining intelligence about our cash. Okay. So, you know, I, my big role, and as, as for, I think a lot of CFOs is no surprises, right? I, I don't yeah. want any surprises with my cash and what's going on. And so visibility and making sure that I'm forecasting appropriately is obviously a very important function that, that I have. Um, from your perspective, I, I just want to know, 
from you, you know, when we talk about cash visibility and reporting, how do you think about that? What would you recommend to CFOs and how should they be thinking about that topic? So I'm going to unpack that one step back. Who's the audience? Let's first identify who is the audience of this cash reporting you're doing, right? Mm -hmm. Because there's the operational audience that's actually cash operations people. They're going to see a lot more detail, want to have the, the functionality of pivoting through data and understanding data in a different way. Then you're going to have the kind of the overseers of the cash, the treasurers, the CFOs, the controllers, the board members, right? So it's a different audience. So they're going to have different levels of requirements for visibility on that cash. So let's define for the, the operational folks, there's going to be a lot more details for sure. Let's go to the, the first area or the second area first, kind of reverse this a little bit. When you're getting ready to set up the cash visibility and reporting, it's mainly cash, debt, and investments, and all the different things that are around that liquidity, right? Let's define the experience base of the people that you're talking with, right? Do they understand cash is cash across all organizations for the most part, but let's be careful. Some people's understanding of cash is a little bit different. So let's go through and have a good understanding of who they are and what their background is and what they've been experiencing with cash in the past. Do they have a predisposition to seeing cash displayed a certain way? Okay, if that's all right, let's make sure we're accommodating those things as best we possibly can. Because the goal is to make everybody understand cash, make cash strategic as possible, not make it this cumbersome process. Now, once you've had that conversation, now you can go back and you can develop what is necessary and what I like to call the cash personality of your company. What does your cash personality look like? Because cash is the same across all organizations as a physical thing, right? But everybody's personality looks different. Every corporation's cash runs differently. They have different cycles for their sales, different cycles for their collections, whatever it may be, their personality is different. So how do you define that? What's the best way to define that? So let's go and look at the, the key thing you'd probably provide. You want to show a cash position report and the cash position report at the upper senior level, the highest, highest level possible is with as minimal number of buckets as possible. Meaning the, the closer you can get to one number, the better off you are when you're reporting to board members. I'm not saying the board members are not capable of understanding the details. That's not the area or the responsibility of the board. It's directional, it's oversight at 30, 50,000 uh, feet. To give them stuff that's at the ground level is wasting yours and their time. So focus more as you can at that upper level of simple trending of total cash positioning, typically in picture format, a graph, a trending graph. Try to avoid tables if you can when you're dealing with that level of reporting. You're trying to keep them at that 50,000 foot level, but you let them know you have the ground level data. You are working at it at a very, very minute level in the operational side, but do not give that to the board. That's not where you go. You're going to take and distract everybody from the strategic discussion. Now you're having an operational discussion. So be careful about distinguishing between operational and strategic cash um, uh, materials. Now, what's going to be on that graph at the upper level? In my opinion, the first thing you're going to want to show is basically your total cash position trended over time because having one data point doesn't make any sense. So what is the increment of time that makes the most sense for your company? I like to present cash at publicly traded companies on a monthly basis. They, they're more disciplined. They got a lot more stuff going on. It's more process in place. So it's a, it's a monthly view of cash on a trended basis. And a lot of times I'd break that cash out by operating companies. If we've designed, designed European operating companies, your Americas, Asia's, I would then have that, the total number, and then each of my regions, just one number for each of them. And trend it over time, you can see that cumulative up, that gives you that look and feel. Now, if you're not international and you're just a single, you know, smaller company in the United States, maybe just have that one line trended. And maybe you're showing it weekly now rather than monthly because you're at a, you know, a startup that's got a runway you're watching and you're tracking. They don't want to see daily necessarily, but show me, show me it by, by month. 
And on a startup scale, now I'm moving a little bit further down, I would probably start showing them the runway on that same graph, right? Here's what our projections are for when this runway crosses the line and we need more capital. Those kind of things need to be on that as well if you're doing it for the, the smaller, shorter term companies. But that personality is what you're trying to bring out. Give me my balances, high level stuff at the board level, intersect that as you get smaller companies, intersect that with your, your uh, forecasted run weights, put that out there, gives them that nice thing to come back to every week. And it might be good too to include your forecast as the next slide. And when you're doing a forecast, Again, do it at the same level that you're presenting to the board. If you're presenting regional information and the total information, that's what you want your forecast to show to the board. If you're just showing the one line item plus your runway numbers, show that in your forecast, put them together. Also show them at least a couple of weeks or a couple months of history on there to show how well you did versus your forecast. Kind of validates that forecast, makes you feel like, okay, it worked out a little bit better than we expected or it didn't work out, right? So that's the kind of stuff I would put in. In the, in the upper level, high level reporting for board member type conversations. Now, don't forget private equity groups and venture capital groups, they may already just dictate to you what they want to see. They may come to you and say, put it in this format and you're going to have to do that. So then you make sure your supporting operational tools are going to support that look and feel. But again, that comes in that first conversation where you're talking with them about what their preferences are, what they've had in the past or what they need. So, kind okay. Of, yeah, this is this is great. No, no, yeah, it's all to unpack. Let, let's talk about this. So, first of all, I, I like the idea, obviously, of just having a balance, and you're seeing the trend of like where your cash position is and where it's going. the The obvious question that kind of arises for me is that if there's any changes or you know dramatic changes in the cash position, you're gonna have to explain to them why. Why is there a change or whatnot? So, in my mind, in addition to just having a general graph of of just the total balance, I would you know, probably have a separate graph that maybe would talk about cash expenses and you'd have high level buckets, which may be, I don't know, labor and payroll expenses. Um, you know, you'd, you'd have these high level type categories of cash outflows, right? Based on, you know, what the greater percentage is. And then you can kind of see the trend of those cash outflows so that you could explain in the same way, probably graphically, right? Oh, oh, look, like, hey, our cash went down because our labor yeah. costs went up, something like that. What would you kind of recommend to, from the explaining standpoint, right? Of why there's changes and differences? Yeah, so so now you're getting into that, the, the detail level more. So again, what level of detail is that board that you're working with accustomed to? Mm-hmm. How far down do they want to dive? And, and that's the, the nice thing about being in treasury. You're going to already have all those details. Got you it. just have to get that right balance. What do they want to see? And how often do they want to do those deep dives? Obviously, the bigger the dip or the bigger the spike, probably the deeper the dive they want to go into. Right? I understand that. And I, I get right. that. But, but I typically start with that graph that I mentioned to you before. And then I might have the next tab or the next page in the presentation be the explanation behind the ups and the downs in the graph. The change, just like you do in your um, financial statements, right? Here's what we had this period, this way we had that period. Here's the differences between the two. Simple things like that to kind of give the explanations. What are the appropriate buckets that you're going to give? That's up to you and that, that board. I typically gave it all the way into the, the full-on detail. We received a payment from company XYZ that rolled up into X number here. Right. I went all the way down to the detail. So it wasn't a matter of, oh, we had a big collection. Was that multiple companies? Is that one company? I preferred when it was a big anomaly, give the explanation. If it's a normal, if it's a normalized growth or just the trends are getting better, you're not going to list every company that gave you the increased numbers, right? You say, we're generally speaking, we're getting collections doing XYZ better than they did last time. So there's that balance, right? If it's one anomalous company, call it out. If it's a trend, you call out the trend. Do the balance between those, interpret those so they don't have to. The, the point of providing the right kind of cash visibility is you provide it in a way that makes it useful for that person sitting on the other side of the table. If it's strategic conversations, 
the last thing they want is a tactical answer, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Give them a strategic answer. And the strategic answer is it was one company. This is what happened. Or it's a blend of the companies. They want to know that. That's their answer they're looking for. So I love where you're going with that. It's the right approach. You got to have that explanation of the differences, but be mindful about what level you're going to go to and what the categorizations you're going to go to. The categorizations, like you talked about, payroll, vendors, collections, whatever they happen to be. I would imagine that some form of an FP&A function is already started, not necessarily defined as FP&A, but mm-hmm. there's some sort of analysis that's run around the income statement for the company already, explaining the differences on the income statement. Right. A lot of those are similar to what's explaining in the cash statement. Not always, because they're different, right? They, they mm-hmm. separate. Always make sure you have coordinated with that report before you put your reports together for the board. You do not want to have them separating. Right. You want to make sure they support one another. I'm not saying you're trying to you know, misrepresent information. What I'm trying to say is that they're coordinated. Mm-hmm. When they conflict, that's a problem. Yeah, yeah. So that's always an effort in that process of getting things ready. You have to communicate with the other person that's doing that piece if it's not you to make sure you're on the same page. So what, uh, what I've done at my company is I prepare a management deck, right? And the management deck yeah. is meant for executive level, right? It does have more details. It's obviously not nitty gritty in the grain, but it certainly contains more details. So that if someone wanted to dive deep, they could. And then when I have my board reporting, usually what I do is I'm taking my management deck and I'm I'm removing stuff. I'll have like maybe, I don't Correct. know, 40 slides or whatever, but I'm just removing some of the more detailed slides out of there. So I'm keeping more of the high level. It's all the same content, but I've just condensed it down into something a little bit more digestible, maybe adding a little bit more color as appropriate for the audience. And that's what I'm doing. What I'm, what I'm kind of getting from this conversation is, you know, in your management deck or whatever your reporting is, you have your cash section, which probably is going to have a slide like you described that's just going to talk about the balance. But you'll also have maybe another slide that'll talk about the cash outflows, the details that you were talking about that you would want to understand from a detailed standpoint. And when it's appropriate to show it to a board, you probably cut out that stuff. You cut out the the detail aspects of the cash manage, but you still have them and be you know ready available to, to present, but you trim it down appropriately for that. Is that kind of the idea? You're, you're talking about what I used to call the disclosure pie. Okay. So when, when the disclosure pie, look at it this way. Uh, internal disclosures, all the internal members, you're going to see the entire pie, yeah. right? And then when you go and talk to your, your uh, executive team, you slice it down just a little bit because they don't want to see all the details. They want to see a lot of them, but not everything. Then you go to the board, you slice it down even further. You scale it down a little smaller piece of the pie. And that's what they get. And that's where your, inter- your external auditors see as well, typically, somewhere in that range. And then when you go publicly, there's the public disclosure pie which is a little bit different. So you're saying along those same things. I, I like what you said there is that, you know, you have your management packet and then you distill that down to the salient strategic points you're presenting to your board. That's what I was trying to get to, right? right. What are the things that are driving the, the changes in the cash? Maybe the, the presentation of the board, instead of having separate pages, here's a page with the graph, with your balances, your balances by region, balances by uh, entity, whatever you're going to do there. And then below it's the talking points of what's driving the changes in the graphs in the cash position? Is it because you've increased your line of credit? Is it because you're having collections problems? Is it because you're, you know, your payables are extending on purpose? What are the main drivers causing the, the personality of that cash in that historical and in the forecast to look the way they are? Maybe it's five bullet points, maybe it's two bullet points, depending on what the main drivers are. The, the goal of the conversation at that board level isn't tactically, what are you doing every day? Mm-hmm. The goal of the conversation at that level is, What's happening to your personality of your cash? What's happening to it? What are the main reasons it's doing those kind of things? And then what are you doing about those reasons? Mm-hmm. If they're positive, how are you emphasizing them? If they're negative, what are you doing to address them? Who's the people involved with them? 
So the, the goal, again, is not what's the day-to-day, -day look at the numbers, slice and dice with the board. It's the giving them the confidence to know you have done the slice and dice. You're down at the level. You're digging into all the exact details. You've pulled out the trends. You've pulled out the issues. And you now have a good, clear summarization that shows your handle on the cash positioning, Got where it. it's been, where it is, and where it's going. That makes sense. Let, let's dive in a little bit further. We've we talked about the historical reporting bit. Let's let's talk about the forecast, right? Which I think is a lot of companies, especially cash strapped, you know, startups that are are going from one round of funding to another. Yeah. Visibility and frequency of understanding cash and you know, I, I mean, quite frequently I can see, you know, a CEO walks into CFO's office and says, you know, Hey, Anthony, you know, where, <laughs> where are we at right now? Right. What's our projection? What's our runway? You know, how much cash we got, you know, th those questions come up frequently as cash is top of mind. So in your mind, I, I just, I want to kind of understand from your perspective, if, if someone was consulting with you to understand, all right, I need to build a cash forecast. What does that look like in your mind? What are the, the, the inputs and what's the information that I'm able to extract from it? Uh, the cadence of updating that forecast and, you know, just, just in general, the, the design and architecture of it. Yeah. And I love forecasting. This is my favorite part of treasury for the most part. It's the most difficult part, but it's my favorite. Mm -hmm. The first thing about forecasting in my mind is you need to identify who the players are that are involved with your forecast, because you're not, in, you're not the only person. You're the one presenting the forecast, meaning you're the one gathering all the data and organizing it and actually running the forecast, but you're going to have a lot of other people involved or other groups involved. And you might be responsible for those groups. You may not. I look at the groups like as receivables and collections. That's the inflow side for the most part, right? right. Your payables group, your capital planning, who's doing all the CapEx work? Who's actually the person or persons behind? What are we going to do CapEx wise over the next three, six, nine, 12 months, and even beyond. And then also what are you doing and expectations for distributions or dividends to shareholders? Who, who, who has that idea? Who's the person responsible for that? And maybe that's what comes out of these conversations, but maybe not. There may be an expectation from your private equity group that this is the cash flow you have to have or the dividends of the publicly traded company you're supposed to maintain. Understand those players. The other players are the debt providers and what the covenant requirements that they have around their debt, both as far as covenants to be able to borrow on that debt and covenants that you have to do from an operational reporting to them and sharing with them. Get all these people that are internal and external rounded up and talk with them. Understand what their limits and requirements are from a system standpoint. What can they actually provide? Can they provide it to you in Excel spreadsheet? Are they providing a data dump out of your ERP system? Are they providing it from a capital planning spreadsheet? Where's the data coming from? And make sure it's repeatable and you've identified and talked to it. So now you go through and you say, all right, what do I need in the detail level, right? There's a lot of work that has to go into gathering the information, validating that information, and then inputting it, right? It's, it's a lot of work. Right. So, so with that in mind, build best practices around this, right? Determine what the real level of cash flow is you're trying to forecast. Mm -hmm. You can't go down to the minute details sometimes. You can in payables or receivables because a lot of times that's in the ERP system and it might be invoices on somebody's desk. You can get that detail, but some of the other areas, how much level detail do you want in your forecast? Maybe it's better to take the cap X forecast and take one or two lines off of it. The main summarization lines and not every single item off the cap X is then in, included in your forecasting spreadsheet, right? That gets to mix that forecasting spreadsheet, just too cumbersome to deal with. You looked at the inputs and you decided, I only want these items off of your input sheets. So send me those every week, every month, whatever it is. So define those, right? Then separate your cash flows by the definitions that we talked about a little bit earlier. Are you doing it by entity? Are you doing it by location, by region? How are you going to organize this data? 
If you're just doing a total overall forecast, okay, that's a lot easier, but maybe you're gonna do a couple regional ones, a couple entity ones, and you're gonna roll them up into the top one. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Then you identify the way to work with the most consistent and the most consistent way you can with those people that are providing that information, okay? Mm -hmm. So now you've defined what you're gonna get from them. You know what's gonna happen. Now you gotta go through and start to get uh, a set schedule. Talk with them. Is it gonna be weekly, monthly, quarterly? What are you forecasting? Make sure they're on board with that. They know the schedule. They're going to be required to send you information, right? By the way, the first time they kick off the information is always the most difficult for them. And you've got to remind them the first run or two is always the most time consuming. After that, it starts to flow. It's a lot easier. It's a lot easier to update than it is to create. Just keep that in mind, right? So then you get the, the participants together and you meet with each one of them, like I said before, and talk about what they can provide to you. Show them what you're going to do with that information and find out who is the person that's in there. What is the, what's the right um, person in that organization in payables? Is it the manager? Is it somebody else? Whoever it is, bring them together and have that conversation with them. Then I love the idea if you can, and I was successful only one time in my career, trying to tie their performance and in putting information into the forecast into their annual reviews for their own personal annual reviews. It's hard to do. Is that accuracy based do, or what is that? What, what's how, that? How does is that accuracy based or how does that work? Yes, it's accuracy based, right? Number one, two things. Are they timely providing the information, right? Am I waiting for them all the time? Do I have to go without them once in a while and just make estimates on my own? That's part of the, uh, the measurement. The other measurement is how accurate are they on a increment of time, right? One week out, five weeks out, six weeks out. It's incredible the level of detail, level of insights you get in your forecasting. It's kind of Pavlovian to some degree, right? They want to make sure they're successful. They're going to be very paying a lot more attention on this. Make sense? That makes sense. That makes sense. Okay. Um, so I... now, after you've gone through all that stuff, right, you got to consistently communicate with them when you're going to do this stuff. So now what are you going to build it in? You're going to build an Excel, a Google spreadsheet. What are you going yes. to put this in? Yep. Or get a TMS, a treasury management system. So I always lean to, to Excel first because that's the, the common background for almost anybody coming in finance is Excel. It's the most ubiquitous tool that's out there. It's one of the most flexible and all that stuff. Google Sheets is coming in at their own. It's actually easy to use in some respects, but Google Sheets, in my opinion, might not be the best, best way to run a forecast. It might be a great way to get the inputs in for your forecast, but the actual forecast tool yourself, kind of keep that independent and keep that available to just maybe the one or two people, not to the whole group of people. Hmm. So okay. then go through the process and we'll talk about TMS in a minute, the treasury management systems in a minute. Then you want to create a template for every person that's going to provide information to you. Because one thing that people like to do is here's my data, go run with it. Oh, that's kind of nice, but there's a couple of things that are going to happen there. Number one, I might not interpret the data right, so I might do it incorrectly. What I'd rather do is say, let's build a template for you you pull the data out of your ERP system, whatever you're doing payments person, let's keep that as our, our avenue. You pull the data down, you put it into this format because you know what this is. I don't. I don't live, eat, sleep, drink payments every day. You do. Let's build a template they can update and maintain on a regular basis. Keep a template separate for each different input that's coming in. And then Make sure you're sending that out and be mindful of the fact that, right, when they're building their templates, they're probably just pulling stuff from ERP system and dumping it in there. Help them do that. Help them the template accommodate that appropriately, right? Makes sense. Then create a shared drive where they're uploading their templates every week. I'd rather not do it via email if you can. It's nice to keep an inventory of all of them in one place. Does that make sense? Makes sense. What I'm saying is 
try to keep the actual process templates and the process of forecasting out of email. You can send reminders every week, every month to update their information, but put the templates on a stored drive somewhere. So you can an inventory of those templates. And every time they update, update a template, you change the naming convention of the template. My favorite naming convention is year, month, day, two digits for each. If you keep it year, month, day, it always stays in, in numeric order, right? Mm -hmm. It always builds numerically nicely. Okay. Then you have the, the, the payments folder for all the payments forecasts. There's inputs are in that folder. Receipts, they're in that folder. Everybody has their own folder they're putting their updated templates into. Then you can go into that template structure and say, who hasn't updated yet? I sent them an email. They haven't updated it yet. I can go back and follow up, call them and get them in there. But that keeps a nice organized way by date nomenclature in the file structure and a nice way separate to history if you have to go back and look for something that's going wrong in the, in the um, forecast, right? Mm -hmm. So now you've had this conversation with them. You've got it all ready to go. You've, you've, you've got some details available for them in a template, but make sure your template has availability for them to put notes about whatever, explaining anomalies in their data, because that's what rolls up to the other details we talked about a minute ago, is this bottom level, ground level anomalies. Give them the ability to put those notes in there too. Run the test forecast, run it for everybody together. Don't publish the test one, get it going, work the bugs out a couple times. Once, you know, two, three times, get it all bugged, worked out. You pull in all the inputs from the different groups. You're now pulling it all into one tab now. You've taken all those input tabs. They're all in one full Excel spreadsheet now. And you've added one extra tab at the beginning. It's the consolidated report tab where you're now taking specific information off of each one of those input tabs. And that basically creates kind of like an income statement for your cash flow, right? Here's my inflows, here's my outflows, and here's the sub details for each one of those. And there's your total net cash flow at the bottom and how it rolled from the beginning to the ending balance all the way. That's the way that consolidated report should look, in my opinion, taking not every detail, but the main details from each of those different tabs. It might be one line from payables, one line from collections, and two or three lines from your CapEx, one or two lines from your debt. It, it depends on your need of detail at that, that consolidated level. And how does that work with historicals then? So, you know, let's say you get all your, your information. Let's say you're doing this exercise weekly. Well, a week passes and now you have actuals. You know exactly what happened. Do you then go in, take those actuals and then compare like, this is what we projected. This is what actually happened and try to figure out where the holes were. And is that kind of the next You're ahead of me. Yes. You're ahead of me. There's another tab for historical that you're going to pull the historical and data and add to that tab each month, right? Got each it. week. Got it. So Get the inputs for the forecasting first, bring them into the forecasting look, make sure the forecasting rolls the way you expect the forecast to roll each week. Let's do a mm -hmm. weekly period. Mm -hmm. Now that you've got that looking the way you'd like it to look and it's saying what you want to say for this week, next week, and the next four, six, eight, 12, whatever weeks you're forecasting out, you're comfortable with the way the forecasting, all the inputs came in. Great. Now you want to create a graph for that, right? And what kind of graph do you want to show? Again, are you doing the one line, just the total number? Are you doing a regional line? Are you doing subtotals, the main subtotal? You have to define what you want. It's not hard once you build that consolidated report tab the right way. It's easy to make it go trending across your columns, right? The, col the, the first set of rows on the first column is describing what the actual cash flow is. And each column is every increment of time going out in the future, right? Mm -hmm. Pretty straightforward. Yep. That's easy to build a graph against. And you can decide, am I doing it at the total or am I doing it at the sublevels? Easy to do. Now, then you take... After that, you've got your historical information. I like to do historical information and organize it as much as I possibly can the same way my inputs came in. That's a little tricky, right? Because now you're getting information from your bank and it's not classified the same way typically as 
you know, your ERP system is classifying it. So you have to do some sort of way to, to connect the two, some sort of self-defined category that says these transactions from the bank are actually these. These are these, these are these, these are these, right? So that's hard to do unless you've had some sort of way to categorize and connect them. You might have to skip that. You might have to say, look, I'm taking my just my total number. I'm taking it by region. And then maybe that's all you're going to do from a historical basis. It's, it's all about what you can do with that data and how you can tie it through a common key to your forecast. We call them categories in my treasury suite system. The user defines categories. Our system looks at transactions that come from the bank, uses those filters, and applies the actual category or GL code to that. Mm. So it's a lot harder to do in Excel, but, but if you're doing it from a historical standpoint in Excel, I typically just take a bigger number and just do the one line number. And then you want to be able to measure how that went, right? Right. That's where the accuracy comes into play. You'll say, you know, our cash balance was projected to be this, but it actually came out as this. You dive in to figure out which input was off or maybe it was a combination of them. And then Absolutely. you maybe have some kind of postmortem where you understand, okay, why weren't we accept, what, what did we miss? How do we miss? What are we going to change rolling forward and just constantly evolving it? Exactly. Every month do a week cycle, you do what you just said. Look back and see, where did I miss? Was it inflows? What inflow was it? What type of inflow was it? If I have that detail, dive into that. But more importantly, where did I miss? Typically, what you start seeing is a divergence. About 90 days out, your forecasting accuracy tends to slip. Because let's mm -hmm. be honest, you've got your invoices and your, your payments and stuff already in your ERP system. And that's where you're pulling most of that ARAP, the crux of your, your cash forecast, right? Right. That's in your ERP system. Once you get closer to 90 days, then you got invoices sitting on people's desks. They haven't input yet into the ERP system or they haven't run to the, the collection side. So, so that's where you start diverging in your forecast. So if you're measuring that well beyond the 90 day window, then you can start seeing, hey, once I get past 90 days, how accurate was I 90 days ago when I forecast this? And then you look again the next time, 90 days plus, and you start to say, okay, I'm constantly having trouble in my inflows. And it's always in this area of inflows. And by the way, this is what I did at iOmega and at AMI Semiconductor. We had a, you know, an idea of what our accuracy level was. And we started doing this accuracy waterfall. And we went from being about 70% accurate at these places at any given increment of time, a little bit higher earlier, but a little bit less further out to getting the 90 percentile because we measured it not only by the type of flow, but the historical time frame when it started to have trouble. Was it 30 days out, 60 days out, 90 days out? And then you start to look for those big differences and you focus on them. The next cycle, that tends to shrink. The next mm -hmm. cycle, it tends to shrink again. Right. It's, it's the way to really make a forecast effective just by running it once and coming back at the end of the year and seeing how you did. That's not forecasting to me. Mm -hmm. That's putting your finger in your mouth and putting it up in the wind and seeing which way the wind's blowing, in my opinion. Well, you, so you for want those, that accuracy all the time. Right. So for those, uh, this is actually a good point. So for those who are listening, for those who have a, a forecast, uh, the first 90 days, obviously I'm assuming accuracy should be pretty high, right? We're talking 95 plus or something, you know, because it's, uh, is, that, is that 80%? Okay. 80% yeah. accurate. And then after 90 plus, what is a good measuring in your opinion of, you know, Hey, I'm, I'm achieving, you know, what 70%, 60, but what's a good percentage that, that indicates that you're on the right track. Obviously you're trying to constantly evolve and constantly strive for higher, but if you're just trying to gauge, like, uh, is this working or am I really off? And it's really not, it's not functioning correctly. Yeah, well, I take that back and say, what is your tolerance for, for risk, right? I got <laughs> that's it. the answer no, to that question. That's a good point. That's a good point. So, so if you're okay with it being a little bit loose because you have a good cash position or you have a good credit facility, then maybe you're only striving towards a 75 to 80% accuracy on any given time frame out, right? Mm -hmm. If you're really tight from a cash standpoint on your debt requirements and all that, 
you need to be a lot tighter. You need to be in the 80 to 90 percentile and do whatever you can as far as you possibly can. Now, a lot of people are going to push back on that and say, there's no way you can know past 90 days at a startup company. And, and the answer to that is probably right. That's probably correct. Okay. But that doesn't mean you can't strive towards that and make the effort to try and be that way and have a process that's focused around getting to that mm-hmm. number. So, all right. So, the, and this is, this is fantastic. Uh, now, as we talked about before, a lot of CFOs don't have a dedicated treasury professional. So they have to rely on their staff to perform treasury functions. Um, and so in that case, what would you recommend to CFOs who are trying to develop their staff to become better, I guess, de facto treasury professionals and understand their skills? How, what, how would you, what would you counsel them to do? Yeah, that's a great question because if you know, going back to any college you were at, there's not a defined treasury degree from any university. Right. And so you can't come out of school with a treasury degree. Everybody in treasury is homegrown. Mm-hmm. So how do you become a homegrown treasury person? Well, I, I gravitated towards treasury type things in grad school and I, I gravitated towards those kind of activities in my job and was fortunate to land in treasury departments and stay in treasury departments. But how do you do that if you don't want to build a treasury department necessarily? The first thing you need to do is actually make sure they're getting associated with the treasury type associations that are out there for networking and educational opportunities. The biggest one is the Association for Financial Professionals, AFP, afponline.org. That's the biggest association for treasury people. Then you can get associated with networking and go to their events. They have chapters in the state of Utah. They have chapters in uh, Colorado. They have chapters all throughout the United States, actually, but there is one in Utah. Get in the local chapter. Then you'll meet more treasury people. You'll have conversations with what they're doing. You can have conversations while you're waiting for sessions to start during the luncheon sessions they have. Just generally network and talk to them about what they're doing with their processes, their procedures. A lot of times they'll share their forecasting spreadsheets with you. Mm-hmm. That's not uncommon at all, right? We right. talked about forecasting a minute ago. Mm-hmm. The other thing too, the Association for Financial Professionals has a certification for treasury professionals it's called the Certified Treasury Professional. It's an it's a exam. It's a course session you have to go through. It's a pretty stringent um, test and you have to keep yourself recertified just like your CPA. Now, I don't know whether I'd say for somebody that's a controller that wants to get better treasury to go out and get their CTP certification, but it doesn't hurt to go to the annual events and their educational events that AFP offers for their CTP credited people. You can use the same learning to fulfill your CPA continuation credits as well, because right. a lot of them are accredited along that same route. You're just leaning more towards the cash side. So the best resource nationally and locally is become part of AFP and then entrench yourself in their local chapter if you can. Go to the meetings and meet more treasury people. Talk to them about what they're doing. That's a great way to do it. And then on top of that, work with your banks. Who is the current bank you're working with? Say to them, who are other customers that are like us that are facing these same treasury problems? Can I talk to them a little bit about how they're approaching it? Bankers are oftentimes the resource for treasury at most small to medium-sized companies. The treasury people at the banks define the treasury for most small to medium-sized companies. And to me, that's kind of like the fox watching the hen house a little bit, right? They're your service provider. They have a vested interest in you do certain things with them. That might not necessarily be the right way for you to do that treasury. I'm not saying banks are ill Faded, and that's what they're trying to do. What I'm trying to say is leverage them to connect you with other customers or other people in their network and be mindful that their interests may not necessarily align with yours. And that's a, that's a huge thing to be concerned about with your banker, especially if they're your credit provider and your treasury products provider. And what I mean by that is they're giving you your debt and they're also the bank that you're using for your deposits, your payments, and your collections. They have an agenda that they have to do themselves. So be mindful of that. They're a great resource, but at the same time, be mindful. 
Right. Well, wait, I, I feel like we've only scratched the surface of this, right? We went deep into forecasting, which is great. Fantastic. I'm great. But there obviously were a lot of other functions that you mentioned that uh, we could probably spend a lot more time on discussing. Sure, um, sure. But I, I'd love to kind of wrap up now just for you to talk about the top do's and do nots uh, as treasury. As a CFO, what should I be doing and what should I make sure I'm uh, I not, I don't do? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think the most important part in treasury is make sure you're focusing on the visibility and maximizing the liquidity resources you have at your company. Meaning, don't leave cash sitting around latent. Don't let it sit at a bank just sitting there because it makes you happy. You know it's there. You're paying deposit fees right now, by the way. FDIC insurance deposit fees, account analysis assessment fees, whatever the banks try and label them. They're charging you a fee. It's kind of like an interest, or, or excuse me, an insurance fee for them to pay the FDIC for your deposit. So be careful about that. Right. Instead of doing that, the interest rate environment is really low. You're not making a lot of money right now, but there might be other vehicles, even within your bank's capital groups, to move that money to a simple short term overnight, whatever money market fund or a corporate fund or corporate bond fund or something like that. that has very high credit ratings, very low risk of uh, losing it and high liquidity, but you're not paying a deposit assessment fee anymore, meaning don't let your cash just sit there and not work for you. Even if you have only a million dollars or $2 million, whatever, even lower numbers, talk to your bank about making that cash work for you. They always tell you, we do have it working for you. We give you an earnings credit rate sometimes, giving you a, a, an interest on the amount of money you have deposited. Oftentimes that interest rate on the amount you have deposited doesn't even exceed the insurance rate they're charging you for the FDIC deposit assessment fee. So in the end, you're never covering even your deposit amount, let alone your fees at the bank. So be careful about that earnings credit rate that they're providing. Make sure your cash is being working for you as much as you can. You may not have the situation that you have excess cash to invest. Pay down debt. Don't let it sit there and earn money for the bank when it could be earning money for you or paying down debt. That's the main focus of cash visibility and resource management, right? Get all the cash where it needs to be. You got to understand where it has been, where it is and where it's going so you can do those activities. Now, on top of that, one of my other things I always like to tell people is be careful about fraud. The fraud prevention is a big issue right now. There's things like CEO risk. We could do a whole session on CEO fraud risk right now. It's incredible what's happening in the marketplace and the trends of people getting money out of companies by sending unsolicited emails saying, we need to do a hurry wire real quick. It's confidential type stuff, right? Mm -hmm. Yep. Watch your fraud prevention. Test it on a regular basis. Tell your employees you're testing them on a regular basis, not because you're trying to catch them, because you want to make sure they can't be tripped up test it on a regular basis. Um, the other thing is look at your bank fees every month. Don't just look at the total number. Look at the, the details in those bank fees. I'll tell you this, everywhere I've worked, obviously I've been at bigger companies most of the time, you know, several billion dollars in revenue and such. But everywhere I've worked, I've been able to take the bank fees, review them, find savings in excess of my salary. I'm free almost everywhere I work because bank fees have a lot of margin in them. Watch those. And then lastly, Benchmark your treasury operations. That's where AFP and all the networking stuff you do comes in handy. You want to look at some of the things they provide from what metrics you should be looking at with your treasury functionality, how, how appropriate you're doing certain things. Get those benchmarks from those organizations and track your treasury there. You may not have a defined treasury department, but the functions are the same. Get those measurements, benchmark them, make sure you're looking at them on a national, local, and size of your company level and keep yourself up to date. Got it, got it. 
Well, that's fantastic. Um, wait, this has been fantastic. I great, a lot of information to unpack here. Really appreciate your time. Um, but uh, yeah, a lot to unpack around cash management and just, you know, watching your cash and being more intentional with cash. Yes. And so I really appreciate your time and, uh, and joining us today. Thanks to our audience who have joined us as well. And uh, we'll catch you next time.